Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. If I asked you to close your eyes and tell me what Shakespeare sounds like in your mind, what kind of sound would you hear? Tapping of a pen on the paper. Or oh, a, yeah. Yeah, just like thinking of... You know, and the scribble of like a, an old fountain pen writing, like it's very sharp sounding. And if someone were speaking his lines, what would they sound like to you? I feel like he would have an English accent. Yeah, probably English. Was he even English? He was English. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, not sense. American. Wouldn't sound American. Yeah, I mean, it could have been like super proper English, like what an English man would say, like a scholar. <laughs> Can you imagine a time in America where people would be willing to die over Shakespeare? I believe in disagreement. I think it's a good thing. I think people should test their views and talk to other people and so on. So but violence, we draw the no, line. No, not violence, no. not violence. It's hard to imagine that, you know, art could inspire people to violence like that. It's true. There was a time in America when Shakespeare was important enough to die for. The year... 1849. America's been independent for less than a century. The place? New York City. Then, just like now, it's the great melting pot of American life. English culture still looms large, especially in upper-class New York. But there's also a huge Irish population, heavily working class, and they loathe the English and everything they represent. Theater is the popular art form of the day. Rich people, poor people, refined, rough, everybody loves to go see a performance. And there's a lot of Shakespeare, for sure. Downtown, the greatest American actor of the day is at work. His name is Edwin Forrest. He was born in Philadelphia, just like the country, and he's a living, breathing symbol of the American spirit. He's big and handsome, athletic and virile, and he's famous for a physical acting style that people find unbelievably lifelike. Forrest is in residence playing Shakespeare and other roles at the Broadway Theater on New York's Lower East Side. He's famous for his Macbeth. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand. Come, let me clutch thee. A few blocks north, the Astor Place Opera House is waiting for a Macbeth of its own. 
the famous English actor William Charles McCready is on an international tour, and he happens to be Forrest's greatest rival. McCready is everything Forrest is not. Classical, elegant, a little fragile, a little effete. And pity, like a naked newborn babe, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, the tears shall drown the wind. He's got a following too, the uptown crowd, and certainly not Forrest's Irish fan base. The opera house is brand new, its tickets are really pricey, and its vibe is deliberately posh. It's intended for the toffs, the upper-class New Yorkers who are ritzier than the folks on Lower Broadway. McCready is known for his Hamlet, and for one moment of it in particular. At the point in the play when Hamlet announces that he's going to feign madness, McCready takes out a big handkerchief, and he does this crazy dance. English audiences go nuts. Forrest sails to England to see it, and he gets himself a prime seat at McCready's Theater. When the handkerchief dance comes along, Forrest stands up, and he starts hissing loud. The feud is on. It is a tale told by an idiot. It is a tale told by an Full of sound and fury. Full of sound Signifying and fury. Nothing. Signifying nothing. I'm Barry Edelstein, Artistic Director of the Old Globe in San Diego, one of the country's leading Shakespeare theaters. And this is Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare, from The Globe and Pushkin Industries. Our show discovers Shakespeare in all sorts of unexpected places and asks what he's doing there and what his presence means about him and about us. My companion on this search for old William is a friend and colleague with their own deep interest in Shakespeare, M. Weinstein. M's a director and writer who works on television and film and stage, and Shakespeare has been a big part of their life. Hey, Em. Hey, Barry. Thanks for having me. This Forrest-McCready rivalry is really juicy stuff. People don't know much about it or about how much Shakespeare meant at that time. So the Forrest and McCready thing gets at something that's been a theme through my 30-year career working on Shakespeare in America— something um, that you and I have discussed a lot, and that is the notion that there is such a thing as an American Shakespeare, and that American Shakespeare has a purity and a truth and a power all its own. I'm right there with you, Barry, and that notion isn't unique to us to, or to our moment in American culture. It feels like theater makers started searching for it from the very time that this country was born. But up until Edwin Forrest in the 1840s, no single artist had planted the stars and stripes so deep into the complete works of Shakespeare. And in a way, he kind of changed the game, right? He invented an acting style that somehow managed to express this country and its energy and its values. He did, but ironically, he discovered that there was no writer who allowed him to be more American than William Shakespeare. That's so fascinating. 
Okay, but back to the story. So Forrest went to England to hiss at McCready, and now they're both playing Shakespeare in New York within blocks of each other. Okay, so Forrest's fans buy up a block of seats at Astor Place, and when McCready starts to perform, they interrupt him, throwing vegetables and screaming. The violence starts to get out of hand, and patrons run out of the theater. Outside, they bang into more of Forrest's crew, who've marched up from downtown. They're throwing rocks that they've grabbed from a quarry nearby. Windows shatter. The chaos escalates. 10,000 people are jammed into this one tight section of Lower Manhattan. The situation gets so volatile that National Guard troops pour onto the scene. They fire warning shots, but they don't help. So they open fire on the crowd. People fall. There's blood. By the time it's over, dozens of people are injured, and 22 are dead in the streets. It's the worst riot in the young country's history, and it centers on whether or not Shakespeare is American. M, it's an amazing story, isn't it? It's wild. And it's crazy to me that even though it was a total cataclysm 175 years ago, the Astor Place riot is kind of forgotten today. Yeah. The interview clips that open this episode are proof of that. We recorded them on Astor Place. And if I'm not mistaken, the only living legacy of the riot is that New York City's mayor at the time ordered the police department to permanently arm itself as a cautionary measure. The force that patrols the streets of the Big Apple today can trace its considerable firepower directly to a dispute over Macbeth. That is absolutely true. But Edwin Forrest's legacy lives on, and that is what I want to explore in this episode of Where There's a Will. Every actor who speaks iambic pentameter on the stage of the Old Globe or any other Shakespeare stage in this country is a direct descendant of Forrest. And M, as you know, for actors in Shakespeare, being American is a thing. Just like Forrest was told by the establishment that no matter what he did, MacReady would always be better at Shakespeare because he was English, so his descendants in our era hear the same thing. When I started my career in Shakespeare 30 years ago, I heard it. American Shakespeare was less than. Shakespeare was English. His stories are English. His references are London and Warwickshire. The English just do him better. Oh, totally. I mean, I had Shakespeare teachers who spoke in a British accent, even though they're from America. I mean, I had actors show up on first days of rehearsal doing sort of elevated British accents. I'm fascinated by how these old prejudices continue to resonate through our theater, in our acting culture, even in our thinking about Shakespeare. The Old Globe, the theater I run, has a professional actor training conservatory, and its mission is to nurture the Edwin Forests of tomorrow. I had a conversation with the director of our program and with one of his wonderful students about how they connect their Americanness to Shakespeare. We'll get to their stories after a quick break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. I'm Jesse Perez. I grew up in uh, East Los Angeles, California. I moved to New York to study theater at the Juilliard School when I was 18 in 1996. Jesse's a professional actor with a long list of major Shakespeare credits. He's also one of this country's great acting teachers. Jesse and I first met like 25 years ago when I taught Shakespearean acting at Juilliard and he was my student. Now, all these years later, He directs the Old Globe and University of San Diego Shiley Graduate Theater Program. And in that gig, he's a maker of future Edwin Forrests. Jesse, my experience as a young Shakespeare director in New York was characterized by a fair amount of Anglophilia pushing back against American artists. There really was a sense that if you weren't English, Shakespeare wasn't for you. And I wonder if, in your experience as a young actor, either in training or at the beginning of your career, you ran into that too. I did. You know, it's hard. it was hard not to. I mean, I, I came out uh, to New York in the 90s, and I remember um, 
when they were teaching us Shakespeare, it sounded English. It sounded British. It sounded like absolutely not me. And so there was a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And the wrong way was, I felt, me doing it the way it lived in me, the way I wanted to say those words. Jesse discovered Shakespeare some years earlier when he was in high school and fell in love with him. And just like Edwin Forrest, he discovered that he and this writer could achieve powerful things together. I went to the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. I didn't really know him then. I was working on, like, Lorca and Tennessee Williams, you know, but I loved language. And then eventually they decided to produce Twelfth Night. And I auditioned, and I got the part of Sir Toby Belch. And it blew my mind. Sir Toby Belch is one of the great comic characters in all of Shakespeare. He's a loud, drunken, anarchic hurricane of a man. And it was interesting because my brothers, my two siblings, came to see it. And they were like, out of all the plays we saw you be in in high school, that was our favorite. And I was like, man, that's Shakespeare. You liked me in Shakespeare, and we did all sorts of different things in high school. And they were like, oh, we have an uncle like that. And so that was my first introduction into Shakespeare and being like, oh, is this connected to me too? Classical actor training in the late 1980s when Jesse was at Juilliard focused really heavily on what American stage speech should sound like. I'll give you 10 points if you can guess what they taught. And there was a book, right, that taught you how to speak. Yeah. What was it called? Speak with Distinction. Speak with Distinction by? Edith Skinner. And what sound did it create? A very British sound. Which they, they, called, they called Mid-Atlantic, yeah. right? They called Mid-Atlantic. Yeah. Nobody lives in the Mid-Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was a made-up sort of sound that, uh, you know, the, the, behind it is that you would be understood in the theater if you spoke this way, uh-huh. right? Back in the 500th seat. And so you start wondering, am I not understood in life if I don't speak that way? Mm. Can you do two lines in the way Edith Skinner wants it to sound? Do you think? <laughs> um, who's there? And that's how I would say it, right? It's the opening of Hamlet. No? Right. Who's there? And it really is this sort of bombastic, the R's are a little softer than an American R. Who's there? Wow. Who's there? And there's, there's the famous ask list, yes. right? Ask, pass. And in truth, no living person on planet Earth speaks that way. It's an artificial construct. It's this, this sort of uh, hybrid of what an American sounds like and what an English person sounds like. Yeah. It feels neutralized. Yeah. It's almost lack of character, right? It's like, oh, so the person's going to walk out on stage and then speak like that. Why aren't they speaking like themselves? Uh, you know, Barry, it's so archaic that, you know, I need to take a new voice and speech <laughs> class to actually get in there. And we teach it at our school. But you, you don't know, use speak with distinction. We do not use speak with distinction. And we're using new techniques where we bring the actor that's in front of us to get their voice in the work and then start sharpening the way they speak. It's amazing. And there's a bunch of old dusty copies of Edith Skinner sitting in a closet somewhere. <laughs> It seems like Jesse really wants actors to sound like themselves, to find their own voice. And he wants them to find their own voice inside Shakespeare. He wants artists to make a genuine, 
personal connection to the material, just like he did starting out, and just like his family did when they watched him on stage. He wants artists to own Shakespeare. It becomes this thing where once you try and you break through, you can't stop. Because all of a sudden, something happens to you that, that you can't really name, but you want more of it. I grew up hearing the, the name Shakespeare because I, I did theater in middle school and all of that stuff, um, but never was taught it. That's Jeffrey Rashad, one of Jesse's acting students. Never read anything in English class, which everyone seems to do. And I was like, oh, maybe Milwaukee school system failed us. Uh, who knows? Jeffrey's a generation younger than Jesse. But that same bias against American actors in Shakespeare was still around when he was starting out. The energy and the air of it was there. The presence of it was there. And it's not just because it was Shakespeare, but I think that a lot of what what I was feeling growing up and being an being a, a actor of color was that your lane was not in the American theater at all. Your lane was black theater. But just like Jesse, and just like Edwin Forrest before them both, Jeffrey found himself falling deep into Shakespeare. And after a while, he built his own relationship with this writer and these texts, and he found himself there. He heard his own voice in Shakespeare's characters, and he saw his own story in the play's stories. Initially, yeah, we have things set across the pond, talking about kings and all these other things, uh, which gives everyone an equal access point into it. You know, people can come in with fresh new ideas because we're not carrying the trauma or the history of the thing with us. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that people from all different uh, cultures can come together and make this thing a new thing. Yeah, when I hear Jeffrey or Jesse or you saying that someone told them that the English do Shakespeare better than the Americans, what I really hear is this sort of code. English really means white and male and wasp and educated and upper class. Certain interests will always claim Shakespeare as their own, and then they'll use him to keep others out. Back in Forrest's time, the working-class Irish were the ones on the margins. In the next generation, it was the next outsider group, Italians or Germans or Jews. Then it was people of color or trans people. Totally. I mean, historically marginalized populations are often excluded from participating in a range of American institutions. Shakespeare's only one of them. But you know what? It's hard to stop artists from making art. There was a black Shakespeare company in New York City 20 years before the Astor Place riots. By the early 20th century, downtown Manhattan had Shakespeare theaters in Italian, German, Yiddish. A straight line connects these theaters backward to Edwin Forrest and forward to you and me and Jesse and Jeffrey. And in the New York theater of the 1950s, that line that connects marginalized people to Shakespeare got stronger and more powerful. That's because of a titanic figure in American culture named Joseph Papp. He was a producer and an impresario, and he founded the New York Shakespeare Festival, the home of the famous Shakespeare in the Park. And he founded its downtown headquarters, the Public Theater. 
Pap did things in his festival that hadn't been done before on the American stage. He cast James Earl Jones as King Lear. He cast Martin Sheen as Hamlet. Sheen changed his name from Ramon Estevez to play the part. He cast Raul Julia as Petruchio. My super dainty Kate. For dainties are all Kates, and therefore Kate. Take this of me, Kate. Joe Papp is a hero of mine. I have a picture of him on the wall in my office next to my desk, and I look over at it a dozen times a day. He believed that Shakespeare was for everyone, and in ways that would have made Edwin Forrest proud, he kind of elbowed the default English style out of the way, and he insisted on making room in Shakespeare for Americanness in all of its varieties. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. 
You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Pap's successor as artistic director of the public theater is Oscar Eustace. I worked at Oscar's side at the public theater for five years before I moved to San Diego in the Old Globe. Oscar is a giant. He's the original producer of Hamilton, to name just one of his many distinguished credits. He's also a thinker, especially about the theater's place in American culture and the much bigger question of what the idea of culture could even mean in a society that's as diverse and various as ours. I found him in his office and I asked him about the Astor Place riots. So, Oscar, this crazy thing happened in the 1840s where Shakespeare became so important to Americans that they were willing to die for him. And there was this riot uh, involving two actors, an Englishman named McCready and an American named Forrest. And it turned into a violent outburst that happened on Astor Place in New York City. And Astor Place is right outside the window behind you. That's exactly right. And every day when you walk to work to make Shakespeare in the American theater, you walk past a place where Americans died on the street Mm. in the name of some cultural values attached to Shakespeare. Mm. That's exactly right. What do you think when you walk past Astor Place every morning about that? Well, I feel lucky to inherit a history in this building, in this neighborhood, in this city, in this field that informs everything we do. We didn't appear out of Zeus's forehead suddenly. We appear out of a long history, not only of American dealing with Shakespeare, but of American battles of who owns the culture. Because, of course, the thing that was at the root of the Astor Place riot, on on the surface, it was a battle over who's the better Shakespeare actor. But really, it's about who owns the culture. And one of the things that you see in the intensity of that battle was the determination of ordinary, uneducated, working-class Americans to say Shakespeare belongs to us. He's not your property because you have money. He's not your property because you identify with the English. He's not your property because of your class and education. He's our property. And I think that shows that from all the way back in the 1840s, Shakespeare wasn't uh, simply something that was imported into this country. Shakespeare was a battleground for establishing ownership of the culture. We embraced him and indeed wanted to seize him for our own. Oscar points out that this is exactly what the builders of the Astor Place Opera House were trying to do, to seize Shakespeare for themselves. It was deliberately built by the upper class of New York City with a dress code. You had to wear white gloves, and they charged enough so that working-class people couldn't get in. And it was that that inspired the riot as much as the fight about Shakespeare, the idea that we don't want to let culture separate into the high and low. We insist that we want to all go to the same theater together. And if you won't let us, a bunch of us are going to die for it. I asked Oscar why he thought this episode in American history had been forgotten. Was it because Shakespeare just isn't as present in American life today as he was back then? I think that uh, 
another way of thinking of it is that the Toffs at the Astor Place Opera House won. They managed over the almost two centuries since then to bring Shakespeare to their places so that Shakespeare belongs to the academy. Shakespeare belongs to graduate schools. Shakespeare belongs to the highly educated Anglophiles in this country and was essentially taken away from the working people. Who is Shakespeare for? This is the question behind the Astor Place riots, and it's the question every one of us working on Shakespeare asks every day. How do we make a Shakespeare for everybody? And how can we make sure that the McCready crowd, the Opera House audience, doesn't get to monopolize him? Oscar answers that question by reminding me of the conditions Shakespeare encountered making theater in his own day. Shakespeare was faced with entertaining the most diverse audience that any theater maker had faced since the ancient Greeks. He had illiterate groundlings watching the play at the same time as Oxford and Cambridge graduates watching the play at the same time as the aristocracy. And his job was he had to entertain them all at once. And in order to do that, in essence, without saying it out loud, you're making that audience understand that they all have something in common. They walk in as individual people from their own tribes and their own classes, but the act of watching the piece of theater together turns them into a city, turns them into a community of their own. And that's why I think Shakespeare is so vital for a democratic culture, because he can do that. He can make us all see ourselves in the play and in each other. I told Oscar about my conversation with Jesse Perez and Jeffrey Rashad, the head of the Old Globe's actor training program and his student. How Jesse, who's Mexican-American, and Jeffrey, who's black, had their own run-ins with MacReady's view of Shakespeare. And I reminded Oscar of my own collision with the Anglophile Shakespeare worldview, a perspective that his public theater has done so much to overturn. There is a fantastic tradition that I think it exists in all the arts, but I can speak knowledgeably about it in the theater, that people who are not fully accepted into the dominant culture have the best and most insightful view of the culture. People who were not wasps, but who came from Irish Catholic traditions, Jewish traditions, and of course African-American traditions, have always been the spark that actually illuminates something in the theater. And I think that condition of having at least one foot firmly outside the mainstream is a huge advantage for artists as they try to capture our time because they're not completely embedded in our time. They're partially removed from it. And so otherness, I think, is actually a great perspective for revelation. This insight seems so crucial. There's always another outsider group in America. That's how American identity is formed, by bringing together people and cultures from elsewhere. And as we know, it's not always a smooth process. And the core of Americanness is not fixed. It shifts all the time as new groups and influences arrive at the edges and start to move toward the center. The Astor Place riot reminds us that again and again, Shakespeare has been a door that opens to let 
outsiders in. That's why the question of who owns him is so important. The owner of Shakespeare is one of the gatekeepers of American identity. And while Shakespeare may be the ultimate icon of insiderness, the quintessential figure of high culture value up on his pedestal for the rest of us to try to reach, Oscar reminded me that he's also something else entirely. Shakespeare was also a Glover's son who barely finished what we would call middle school, who never went to university, who became the most celebrated and brilliant writer in the history of the English language. It's why so many people have tried to deny that that working-class kid from Stratford actually wrote his own plays because they so desperately want to believe it required being on the inside. It required an Oxford education. As a matter of fact, it must have been an aristocrat because only an aristocrat would have that talent. So... From the very beginning, people um, have tried to reject the idea that part of Shakespeare's greatness is he was not an aristocrat. He was not part of the in crowd. He was a working class kid who made it. Who owns the culture? Who owns Shakespeare? Shakespeare's been at the center of my professional life for 30 years. And here's what I know. He's always up for grabs. He's not just a writer. He's not just the name on a volume with 36 great plays in it. He's something more. He's a force of immense cultural power. He's an institution that carries weight and heft and layer upon layer of meaning. And there has been and still is competition over who gets to control him, who gets to speak the lines he wrote, who gets to decide what he means, and whose interests he's construed to represent. That's why he keeps showing up in places where we don't expect him. Because in any corner of the culture where there's a hunger for the authority he confers, he'll appear. Shakespeare grants legitimacy. Forrest and MacReady wanted to establish themselves as the greatest actors of their day, so they needed to prove themselves on Shakespeare. If you can excel at Shakespeare, then you're the best there is. On the other hand, He's a kind of portal that outsider groups and individuals step through in order to participate fully in the culture. Participation in Shakespeare becomes a kind of badge of authenticity. And on yet one more hand, he's like a magnet that draws people toward him. He becomes a kind of gathering place, a site where disparate groups can find some sort of common ground. He forges community. He brings consensus. When there's no other language we all share, we can at least agree that the lines of Romeo and Juliet are beautiful. All this is what I want to get at with Where There's a Will. What is it about Shakespeare that keeps him showing up in surprising corners of our world? What does it say about him that he was once at the center of a debate about American identity that turned deadly on the streets of New York, and that now he's doing rehabilitative work in correctional facilities and helping kids on the autism spectrum to communicate and shaping our observances of our faith and showing up in the mouths of presidents and politicians. And what does it say about us that we keep putting him in these places? Jesse Perez and Jeffrey Rashad, custodians of the future of Shakespeare in America, are asking these very questions. 
And what I always do for the younger generation is I say, fight for your story. Find your story in it and fight for it. Put it out there. Make us see it. Be so specific and detailed with the text work, which we try to teach them, so that you put it on their lap, the audience's lap, and we can be like, okay, how do we deal with this now? Because it does belong to us. It's the English language. It was meant to be interpreted by everybody. So I'm just interested in what it means today. Why Shakespeare now? And they're here to tell us. My students are here to tell us. They're guiding the way. I am so glad to be entering into this work now um, where the, the tide is turning on the attitude towards it and who can take ownership of this work. Because now I feel such a freedom to bring the work to me instead of having to do the work to get to it. I think it's more impactful. I think it's more dynamic when I bring the work to me um, into my life, into my personal dramaturgy, into my story. When this body stands on the stage and speaks those words, it's a different thing from when this body does it. And, it, and that's because we've lived different lives. And because we're speaking the, this, uh, this language, it automatically is mine. It's automatically mine to tell the world. Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare is written and hosted by me, Barry Edelstein. My co-host is M. Weinstein. Our show is produced by Buffy Gorilla and Nisha Venkut, with assistant producers Jennifer Sanchez and Salman Ahad Khan. Our executive producers are Catherine Girardeau from Pushkin and Alex Lewis and John Myers from Rohome Productions. Our editor is Audrey Dilling. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger. Our theme is an original composition by Hannes Brown. Samuel Bouzid is our fact checker. Thanks to actors Daniel Gerald as McCready and Ian Lassiter as Forrest. Where There's a Will is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and The Old Globe. Barry Edelstein, that's me, is Erna Fincy Viterbi Artistic Director, and Timothy J. Shields is Audrey S. Geisel Managing Director of The Old Globe. For The Globe, thanks to sound director Paul Peterson and assistant to the sound director Evan Eason. Director of Marketing and Communications Dave Henson, Assistant to the Artistic and Managing Directors Carolyn Budd. The Theodore and Audrey Geisel Fund provides leadership support for the Old Globe's year-round activities. To learn more about the Tony Award-winning The Old Globe, one of America's leading regional theater companies, visit theoldglobe.org. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Find the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress.
This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.